Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm just about to start, and a reminder to everyone, just I think something really important, <clears throat> maybe subtle, but, but these are the, the, the little things that I think are the big things. You know, whenever you learn Torah, always begin by kissing the Torah book. I think a lot of people are used to doing it afterwards, but I think it's as or more important to do it beforehand. And that's because our relationship with Torah, and we're going to speak about this at at length today, our relationship with Torah is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a book of knowledge or a book of wisdom. It's a book of life. And that's an extraordinary distinction. One of the things that I heard Reb Shlomo say more times than anything else over the period that I was with him, some, I don't know, 18 years or something like that, was he would always talk about the difference between the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. And he once said that, that what's the difference between a rabbi and a rebbe? He says, a rabbi tells you some information that you didn't know before. A rebbe connects you to the deepest part within yourself. So tree of knowledge is important. We need information in order to operate successfully in this world. At the same time, tree of life is something more than that. Tree of life is how you take that information and bring the world to a higher revelation of the oneness of God. Something we call gilui yichud, the revelation of God's oneness. And the truth is, is that everything is really one in our lives right now. Because God is perfection. And so even in exile, there's perfection, but the perfection is very hidden. And there's a great story that comes down from the Baal Shem Tov. And unfortunately, I don't know how it goes, but I do remember the conclusion. Because the conclusion was really interesting because it it involved a court decision and past lives and everything like that, and what appeared to be a great injustice And yet, when you sort of like pull back the lens and you incorporated past lives, you realize that the person who was stolen from actually in another lifetime stole. And so when we look at it through just the eyes of this world, we see injustice. But when you pull back the lens, you realize that there's a perfection that's revealing itself that we don't have access to right now. And so while there's still exile, it's just confusing and it's clouded over. So what we're looking for is that stage of the evolution and the unfolding of God's light where God's perfection manifests itself as perfection. In other words, we will see the justice and the oneness in the moment instead of being confused. But it's no less perfect while it's going on right now, which leads to a lot of interesting thoughts, which is all of us can look at our lives and point to things that are missing. And yet, if what's going on right now is absolutely perfect, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how is this perfect? (laughs) Like, what opportunity am I being given right now that I really need? So anyway... We're just so busy looking at what we don't have instead of understanding that opportunities are being created for us. And if you ask yourself some of those questions, I promise you're going to get some very interesting, exciting thoughts about your life that you probably haven't had before. We're going to go deeper into that and approach it from a different angle. We're at those Torah chapters where the Jewish people are being launched. And there's a lot on soulmates. And you see an interesting pattern, which is we've got Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Well, Yitzchak is the very first person where the question is, who's Yitzchak going to marry? And so you have this entire episode where Yitzchak's soulmate, Rivka, is found for him. Now, where is that match made? And the answer is by a well of water. That's very symbolic. Where does Yaakov meet his soulmate? And the answer is by a well of water. You have to understand, we're dealing 
<clears throat> with the ancient desert Middle East. And water, on the simplest level, water equals life. And so what we're talking about right now is really the perpetuation of the Jewish people themselves. So yeah, it makes actually perfect sense that it would happen around the most potent symbol there is for life. Now the Gomorrah says, wherever you see a reference to water, it means Torah itself. So that means Torah equals life. Now that's, that's striking. I heard Reb Shlomo say one time <clears throat> that you have to need the Torah to live. Well, just like you can't live without water, he's saying that our relationship with Torah has to be such where you actually need it to live. Now, that's really striking because a lot of people approach Torah as something that they need to do or that they're obligated to do. It's sort of like a semi-inconvenient burden and that's how they kind of interact with it. But what Reb Shlomo is talking about is an entirely different model. He's talking about one's relationship with Torah as having an urgency to it. I need it to live. I need it to live. Now, when that happens, everything changes. Now, I began by talking about how it's really important to kiss the Torah book before you start learning it. And Reb Shlomo said something that is just so brilliant and true. Like, you hear the truth of it, like, right away. He said, did you ever hear an English professor give a lecture about Shakespeare and then kiss the Shakespeare book afterwards? <laughs> or a math professor give a lecture about math and then kiss the math textbook? But we kiss the Torah. Why? Because it's a completely different relationship. It's a completely different relationship. And to the extent that there's that urgency and that love, where it's not just a mental thing, but where you're coming at it with your heart, all of a sudden everything changes. There's a famous expression in English, which is the furthest distance in the entire universe is the distance between your heart and your mind. And <clears throat> really, one of the main things that happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge was that we separated our hearts from our minds. They became two different things. Now, I'll tell you something that I learned from the Eretz Tzvi. How do you know if your learning has reached your heart? How do you know if your mind and your heart are actually together on a particular point? Again, the answer to this is so simple and so brilliant. If you are doing that thing, <laughs> let me make sure I'm communicating. I personally know that exercise is extremely important. I don't exercise for the most part. Do you know what that means? That means that that thought is in my mind and it's not in my heart. Because if it were in my heart, if it had gotten from my mind to my heart, I would be doing that thing. So again, that's the litmus test. That thing which you know in your mind, are you actually doing it? If you're not actually doing it, that means it's just in your mind and it's not in your heart. Your heart and your mind are separated. So this is going to be the next great evolution of the human species because we have a blockage on our heart. It's called an orla. That word orla appears periodically throughout Torah. It's a very significant word. When we have the bris milah of a, of, a, of a young boy on the eighth day, that extra piece of skin is called an orla. It gets cut away. But that's sort of like a one-time event. But do you know something? Men and women both have a major orla, and that's this orla that's around our hearts. That's in the Torah itself. And God commands us. He says, take away the orla, this blockage from your heart. 
Not only that, but this is such a significant mitzvah that in the name of the prophet Yecheskel, Ezekiel, God says through Ezekiel, I will take out the orla and remove the orla, the blockage from your heart. Which means one way or another, it's happening. It's happening. Obviously, it's better if we do it. But the significance of that is, is that it's telling you, you know, like I love to say, we believe in evolution more than Darwin. Because we believe that the world itself is still evolving toward perfection, and the human species is also still evolving. And one of the major steps of evolution of the human species will be when that blockage from our heart disappears, and the mind and the heart are together. And then I'm telling you, there are going to be radical quantum leaps in terms of human perception, of the universe, of God, of absolutely everything. It's going to go, wah! It's going to go to a whole completely different place where we're going to be able to perceive dimensions that are unseen right now. That, that's happening. That, that is part of the destiny of the human species. But right now there's that blockage. There's that blockage where you know something is right, but you still don't do it. So now with that in mind, I want to go into the tragedy of Asaph. Asaph, remember, is Yaakov's twin brother. And Asaph is like a really... <clears throat> Really interesting, really complicated character. Esav is totally tragic. And I heard from Bencion, my good friend Bencion, an amazing gematria. Let, let me introduce it before, before I just tell it to you, because just I want you to appreciate Esav for a moment. Esav is not just Yaakov's twin brother. Remember, Yaakov is considered by the sages the choicest, the greatest of the Avos. In other words, Avraham, Yitzchak culminate in Yaakov. Just so you understand that teaching more fully, it's not just like Yaakov is better than Yitzchak and Avraham. That's not what it is. It's that Yaakov is a complete fulfillment and realization of Avraham and Yitzchak. Do you, Yaakov is the greatest. Yaakov is the greatest. And Esav is his twin brother. When Yaakov wrestles the angel, the Rashi there says it was the angel of Esav. And who is the angel of Esav? The Yetzirah, the evil inclination. So now in the Gemara, it says that the Yetzirah, the Malach Amavis, the angel of death, and the Satan, the heavenly accuser, are all one energy. So now we're saying, wait a second, Esav is, is that? Yes, on one level. But at the same time, and here's where we get to the, the, the tragedy of Esav, Esav is also a human being. Not only is, a human, is he a human being, but when he finds out that he lost the bracha to Yaakov, he says to his father, is there no blessing left for me? And, and, and Yitzchak is like, he doesn't know how to answer him. He says, I, I, I gave everything to your brother. <clears throat> and as testimony to the sincerity of Esav, he asks again, is it... Is there really nothing left for me? And he cries real tears. And are you ready for this? The Zohar says the Jewish people are still in exile over those tears. We're still trying to combat those tears. So you see, well, wait a second. Esav, it's not so simple. You, you know, you can't just like cite that, that Rashi and go, oh, yeah, he's the Yetzirah. I wash my hands of Esav. Now let me make it more real and put it all together for you, okay? And this is from the Me'eshaloch, the Ishbitzer Rebbe. He says the following, and now you're really going to feel the tragedy of Esav, okay? Which is, it's a whole complicated piece, but here's just one part of it. He says that the reason why he was acting sort of like more religious than he actually was 
because the sages say that he would ask his father, do I have to tithe, meaning give 10% of the salt that I have? Remember, salt in ancient times was as or more valuable than gold because salt is a preservative. In fact, salt is such a, like, an ancient, like, valued concept that, that the God himself refers to in the Chumash the mitzvahs as a covenant of salt. So you see, salt is not just like table salt today where you spill some salt and you just wipe it out on the floor. Like ancient kings, you can see this in museums, I've seen this. They would design like these elaborate gold vessels to hold the salt on the table. So salt is like real, you know, it's valuable. Asaph would ask his father, do I have to give 10% of my salt? The answer is no, by the way. He would also say, do I have to give 10% of my straw? And the answer to that is also no. But seemingly, Asaf knew the answers to those questions, and the only reason why he was asking his father was to impress him, to impress him that he was perhaps more religious than he actually was. Now, the Ishbitzer Rebbe gives an amazing explanation. Why was Asaf doing that? Because he wanted, to, he wanted his father to pray for him that, and, and to put wisdom into his heart. So now let's, let's just unpack that for a moment. He wanted that Yitzchak should pray for him and that the wisdom, Esav's wisdom, should go into his heart. Now, so do you understand the implications of that, that Esav was going through this whole ordeal with his father, pretending in order that his father should pray that the wisdom should go into his heart? That, that, that's the words of the Ishbitzer. Do, do you know what that means? Let's just take a moment to try to understand what that means. It means that Esav himself was aware that the wisdom was in his head and wasn't going into his heart that he himself knew that he had a problem, that he understood it, but that he wasn't living it. You know, when you think about it, the Medrash that most of us are familiar with, it's pretty, it's pretty famous, becomes all the more heartbreaking, which is Esav's head is buried in Moris Hamach Pelah, but not the rest of his body because the Torah in his head was real. In other words, it, it's, it, one, one, could, one could view that as really dismissive, that look at that embarrassment, that humiliation, that he was decapitated and his head went into this holy place where, you know, Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Yaakov and Rivka and Yaakov and Leah are buried, and just his head is there. But you could also ask a completely different question. His head was so holy that it's also there? Right? Like, like in other words, something real was going on. Something real was going on. But it didn't make the journey into his heart, and he himself was painfully aware of that. So he said, in the name of the Eretz Tzvi, how do you know if the knowledge in your head is actually in your heart? And here's the litmus test. Again, if you're actually doing it. If you're not actually doing it, it means it's in your head, but it didn't get into your heart yet. Now, there's a story that I heard from Reb Shlomo that is, you know, certain teachings of his I remember, and certain Certain teachings of his haunt me. And this is one that haunts me. Which is, he said that at the end of Reb Tzadok HaKon's life, that Reb Tzadok HaKon was looking at his wrist. This is the way I saw Reb Shlomo do it. He was looking at his wrist. And they asked him, what are you, what are you doing? 
And he said, I want, I'm checking to see if the Torah entered into every single cell of my body. And he said that he learned that because that's what the great Gert Tzedek Avraham ben Avraham did before he was executed for becoming Jewish. He was checking to see that the, that the Torah, that his own Jewishness, actually entered into every, every part of his body. So, so let's talk about this divide between the mind and the heart and what we can do about it in terms of our own lives. Because there's a teaching that I think is instructing us how to avoid this problem. And I want to make the connection right now. It's a famous teaching, a classic teaching from the Talmud. It says when it comes to what we call tochacha, which means rebuke or trying to just kind of put someone on the right path, which, by the way, the Talmud says is almost impossible to do in this day and age, which is really interesting. Maybe I'll just develop that thought for a moment right now. One of my favorite teachings, and I think just one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life, from the Kutzka Rebbe is the following. He says that it's a very great miracle to resurrect the dead, but it's an even greater miracle to resurrect the living. <laughs> now, when you hear that, you, you know in your heart instantly that that's right. But I've been thinking about that for years, over a period of years. And I, was, I asked myself, like, why is that right? Why is that true? And here's... Here's what I came up with. Because when it comes to resurrecting the dead, you don't have to ask their permission. <laughs> but when it comes to resurrecting the living, you need their permission. And not only that, but when it comes to us resurrecting ourselves, we need to give ourselves the permission to want to live. Which is deep. That's really deep. I'll tell you, I had kind of like a, a way out thought one time, which is when we wake up in the morning, one of the first things that we're supposed to do is wash our hands. And that's kind of like a, a mystical thing. You know, you have a cup full of water. Some people have it prepared by the side of their bed or some people have it by the side of the sink, whatever it is. And then you pour on your right hand once, and on your left hand once, and on your right hand a second time, on your left hand a second time, and then you do it a third time in that rotation method, and then you're good. Because we say, mystically speaking, when a person goes to sleep, an aspect of their soul leaves their body, and the Talmud says that sleep is 1 60th of death. So that when you wake up, there's kind of like this unclean spirit on the tips of your fingers, right? and you have a chance to wash it off. Okay, that's step one. <laughs> step two is, isn't it interesting that you also wash your hands in that same way when you leave a cemetery? And so I wanted to put those two thoughts together and say every single morning, it's like you're being resurrected from the dead. And when you leave your bed, it's like you're leaving a cemetery and you have to wash your hands. Right? I mean, you're literally, you're literally bringing yourself back to life. And I can tell you something. I mean, just anyone who really has compassion for other people, what I'm about to tell you is not going to be surprising. One of the quiet acts of heroism and of greatness is just the ability to get out of bed in the morning. And there's so many people, and they don't talk about it because it's, it's private and it's personal. But what it takes just, you know, you see them in the supermarket and you don't give a second thought. Well, they're in the supermarket. They need some food. Yeah, you know why they're in the supermarket? Because they somehow summon the courage to get out of bed. Right? It's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. It's genuine heroism. Okay. Now, we're getting back to this idea that it's very, very hard <coughs> it's very, very hard to get someone to listen to you, right? Because there's so many different factors. They themselves have to give themselves permission to want to do it. There's so many different factors. 
But one of the leading factors to not communicating with another person when you kind of want to bring them to this higher place or whatever it is, is if you yourself aren't doing those things that you're talking about. So to give you a very obvious example, if I'm, if I'm smoking a cigarette and you reach for a cigarette and I tell you smoking is bad for you, <laughs> you're going to be like, who is this joker? And you're going to light the cigarette and you're going to ignore me. So now let's just try to put this into like the realm of physics for a moment. <laughs> like certain things have a trajectory. If I throw a ball very weakly, the ball's going to fall to the ground in a few feet. If I, if I have a really strong developed arm, I can throw a ball probably for hundreds of yards. That's a trajectory. If I'm not holding by not smoking, and I'm telling you not to smoke, those words are going to leave my mouth and they're going to fall right to the ground before they enter your heart. But, you know, if I had a lung taken out, God forbid, and my life was saved, and I rehabilitated myself, and I tell the person, don't smoke, those words are going to go right into their heart. Now, I want to use that to solve what I think is an interesting mystery. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about this as a mystery or considered this, but I think it's a bit of a mystery. I'm sure this is true for a lot of us. Have you ever met someone like at a convention or at an airport, a restaurant, you were traveling, you just met them one time and they told you something and you never stopped thinking about it? Or it changed your life? Do you know why I think that's true? Because it's the inverse of what the Talmud is talking about. If someone won't listen to you because you're not doing that thing that you're recommending they do, if you're really doing that thing, it's going to go right into your heart. When you met that person at the airport and they just told you this thing, do you know the reason why you've never stopped thinking about it? Because they really were living it in their life. They weren't just telling you something simple. They were telling you something that was a major thing in their life. By the way, if you want an insight into the way Pirkei Avos is organized, that's the, it's translated as the ethics of the fathers, they're very different from any other piece of the Talmud. It's part of the Talmud because it's just sayings from the different sages. But I heard Reb Shlomo say, that what those are are not just teachings, those are things that those particular sages lived by. So you understand, it wasn't just simple advice they were given. These were like arrows to the heart. Every single one of those things is an arrow to the heart because they themselves were living by those words. Okay, now I want to tie it all together. Remember, we're trying to solve a problem. The problem is, how can I get my own heart and my own mind together? And I think, you see, the Eretzvi gave us a very nice test, but it's a test after the fact. What did he say? Do you know, want to know if your knowledge has entered into your heart? If you're doing it. That's very nice, but that's after the fact. I want to go a little bit earlier in the process right now, putting together everything that we've been talking about. But before I do, I have to tell you a story. So I heard this from Rabbi Friend, and he's, of course, for decades already, one of the leading Torah people in the, in the world today. And Rabbi Friend told the following story. He said, he gave over a halacha, it's a good, good halacha to know, which is that when it comes to certain afterbruchas, there's certain laws pertaining to them. So for instance, if you have like a cold drink and you want to say the afterbrucha, let's say you had it in your house, that cold drink, 
You can say the afterbrook in your car. It's no problem, the location. If, however, you wash for bread and you have a meal, you have to make that afterbrucha, the, the birkat hamazon, benching, you have to do that in the place where you ate. That's the halacha. He describes a situation where he had washed for bread, he had eaten a meal, he was rushing, he was distracted, he got in his car, he was driving, he was a good ways from his house, he had an appointment to get to that was pressing, and he remembered, I didn't bench. And the halacha is, I have to bench where I ate. And then he had a conversation with himself. He said, am I for real? I know what the halacha is. And he turned around, and it, it wasn't easy for him, but he said, I know what the right thing is to do, and I have to do the right thing, because I have to be for real. And he went back, and while he was benching at the table, one of his children walked into the room and was like, knew her father had to be out of the house by then and didn't understand what was going on and said, what's happening? And he said, and he explained. And he said that he saw an expression on his daughter's face that he's never seen before. And the Torah had never been communicated to her by him as strongly as at that moment. So here's the question. And I think this probably happens to us multiple times, maybe over the day, maybe over the week, certainly over the year, and many, many times over our life, which is a moment of truth. I'm telling you that this is not just a simple moment. This is the moment of truth. When you think of something and you say, I'm supposed to do this. Do you then do it? To the extent that you do, that's when your mind and your heart are together. To the extent that you don't, that's when the rift between the mind and the heart grows stronger. It's like, I'm just flashing on this imagery right now. It's like the mind... You see, remember, the default setting of the heart is that we've got closed hearts. As, as, as I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of the Kutzka Rebbe, let's be real. How often is your heart actually open? Right? That in itself, you know, is a devastating statement. Right? But it's like the mind and the heart the normal setting is for them to be separated. And when the mind has a thought, this is the right thing to do, it's like it's throwing a lifeline to a drowning person in the ocean. And who's that person? Your own heart. (laughs) And the heart has an opportunity to take that lifeline, and then the heart and the mind get to reunite. Now, you have to be careful with what I'm telling you right now, right? I'm telling you some very strong medicine right now. These are very strong words that I'm saying over right now. And as someone who's taken a long time to implement different things in my life, (laughs) a very, very long time, I'm extremely sensitive and aware. and, And by the way, I'm still trying to implement things in my life that I haven't implemented in my life and that my heart is close to. So I'm talking to myself, believe me, 100% right now. But there has to be a real conversation. Now let me, let me tell you something. Let me just address the caveats and, and maybe how to work with what we're saying over right now. On the first page of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, the very first page, do you know what's contained on that first page? That when you wake up in the morning, you're supposed to rise out of bed like a lion. <laughs> and on a good day, I can do it. 
And sometimes I even say, as I rise out of bed, I, I say these words. If I don't, I don't probably verbalize them, but I say them very loudly in my head. Like a lion! <laughs> that's a good day. That's a good day. I'm not pretending that's everything. Believe me. But that's a good day, right? Then I heard something really interesting in the name of the Magen Avraham. Okay? Now, he's one of the greatest halachic authorities in Jewish history. Okay? So, so, so let's just go over the steps of waking up in the morning, okay? Now, ideally, you're going to bed on your left side, and if that feels unnatural or uncomfortable, then just kind of just do it for a second, just so, as they say, you can makayim the shita, just so that you can sort of fulfill the idea of having done it, and then get comfortable. Over time, it wasn't comfortable for me at first. Now, if I'm not lying on my left side when I go to bed, it, it feels uncomfortable. So you'll get there. But you can do it for a moment just to kind of connect with the Torah idea. The Rambam says when you wake up, you should wake up on the opposite side. You should wake up on your right side. So the significance of falling asleep on the left side and waking up on the right side the way I understand it is, classically speaking, we say the right side is chesed and the left side is din or judgment. So to me, starting every single day by turning judgment into kindness, right? So it's a very positive, beautiful way to wake up. And, and by the way, like, have you ever heard the expression? It's so funny that this is the expression. I never put these things together before. It's going to sound so obvious after I say it. Exactly. I woke up on the right side of the bed this morning. That is Torah. The Rambam, that's the Rambam. Can you imagine? And it's sort of like you talk about getting off to a good start. The right side represents kindness and giving. Right? So it's sort of like you're saying, that's what I am an agent of in this world. It's like a very... Interesting reminder, because it's not just intellectual, you're physicalizing it. Like, I am that. I am that. So, on a, on a good morning, if I'm not on my right side, I'll turn to my right side, and I'll have in mind a makayim shita of the Rambam. <laughs> then I'll rise out of bed, and I'll say, like a lion. Then, here's an extra credit thing. It says in Gomor Psachim, that when you make your bed, an angel, an angel is created who advocates for your livelihood. So then I make my bed, and I have in mind a makayim the shita of the Gemara and Sachim, that I'm making my bed, you know? And an angel advocates for your parnosa. Then I go and I wash my hands, okay? In that process, it's probably even better if you wash your hands earlier. But anyway, that aside, and I've said modani there also. Anyway, what's the point? The Magen Avraham says, if you need a little while to get out of bed like a lion, that's okay too. <laughs> so, you know, our holy rabbis were so sensitive. They were so sensitive. They were so sensitive. And the idea is, if you have a thought and you're not in a place where you feel like you can implement it yet, say, you know what? I'll get there. I'll get there. I'll get there. I hear. I hear. I'm not blocking it out. I'm not building up a further wall between my heart and my mind. I hear. I'll get there. I'll get there in the right time. You have to be very, very patient with yourself because the Yetzirah is waiting to take all of these lessons and turn them into a trap against you. Turn them into reasons for why you can't do it because it's too hard. It's waiting to entrap you and to do a jujitsu flip on everything. So you can't, you can't fall into that trap. And the way you do that is you're patient with yourself. I'm telling you, when I was 14 years old, I was in the Karlobach Shul. It was Simchas Torah. 
I was probably a few days from my 15th birthday. I wasn't Torah observant. I was holding the Torah and I was hugging it so much. And it was so clear to me at that moment that this was my whole life. Now I started keeping Shabbos when I was 24. What did I just tell you? I was 14 when that happened. Right? But I never gave up on myself. I never gave up on myself. And I never started, I never stopped being patient with myself. And, you know, the, there are people who mean well. And they, you know, they look at you and they're like, new? And they're slapping their wrists, their watch, like, you know, you know, why aren't you the person I want you to be yet? You know, like Mazel Tov, you know, like, I'm so glad that you want me to be something. Why don't you work on yourself? <laughs> I'll work on myself. And you know, after 120, we'll compare notes. <laughs> you've, got, you've got something called in Hasidus, they call it the longer, shorter way. <laughs> There's such a thing as the longer, shorter way. And by the way, that comes from the Talmud. Right? So, so, so where does it go? I, I hope I'm saying over this story properly. There was someone who was like kind of lost and he turns to someone and he, he asks for directions to a particular place. And the person says, do you want me to give you the shortest way or the fastest way? <laughs> <laughs> and the person is like, you know, who is this joker? Give me, give me the fastest way. So he points him in a certain direction and he hits a wall. He gets to the wall of the city, but he can't enter the city from that place. And then he's got to walk all the way around in order to enter it. And then he sees the guy again, and he says, what kind of crazy directions did you give me? He said, you said that you wanted the fastest way. Had you asked for the shortest way, it was actually the longer way. <laughs> but it actually would have gotten you to the place where you needed to go. <laughs> so, so there is a way where we acknowledge and work with our own, you know, what's the word? Our own blockages, our own blockages. But, you know, sometimes, you see, sometimes it looks like we're butting up against the wall around our heart, but really it's an intelligence mission, <laughs> where we're actually kind of like surveying, surveying the blockages of our heart to see which way is the best way in, you know? And so it's a process. It's a process. It's a process. And it all just boils down to trying and giving ourselves permission. So with that in mind, let's go back to this amazing gamatria that Esav, who represents our Yetzirah, who represents all the blockages, is also the gematria of the word shalom, which means peace. Because do you know something? At a certain point, all the blockages are going to fall away. Not only that, but we're going to find out that all the blockages were only there for us to up our game. And when that happens, we're going to see the complete revelation of God's oneness. And that even when we ran into walls, that ultimately that was just for us to reassess, to ask ourselves, how can I do it better? And to be the best people that we can be. Okay, so now, since we're talking about realizing yourself and this deep connection between you and you, I want to touch on a couple of points right now. And I want to try to explain one of the most perplexing verses, I think, in the entire Torah. So the first verse in, in Parshas Toldos starts the following. And it's, this is going to sound like incomprehensible to you. What I'm going to do is read you one verse, but then we're going to explain it. And these are the offspring of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Okay, I'll read that one more time so you can try to absorb the, the, the riddle in it. And these are the offspring of Isaac, son of Abraham. 
Abraham begot Isaac. Okay, so this is, why is that so confusing? Let me tell you why that's so confusing. Because, and these are the offspring of Isaac, son of Abraham, what you're expecting to hear is, who are the children of Isaac? Right, and here are the children of Isaac, son of Abraham. You're expecting to hear the names Yaakov and Asaph. And instead, you get this totally bizarro conclusion, Abraham begot Isaac. Well, we already know that Abraham begot Isaac. We just said that Isaac was the son of Abraham. (laughs) So what is this verse? This is really perplexing. Not only that, but if you want to kind of be a little spatial about it, and these are the offspring of Isaac, son of Abraham, we're moving forward in time, and then what happens? Abraham begot Isaac. All of a sudden, we, 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 it boomerangs, and we go backwards in time. Well, what is going on? Why is the Torah expressing itself in such an incredibly perplexing way? So I want to give the following explanation, my explanation. Saying something very, very deep here. And these are the offspring of Isaac, son of Abraham, who was Isaac's child? Because that's, that, that's what the verse is setting us up to hear. Who is Isaac's child? Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac gave birth to himself. Okay, I'm going to explain that in a second. Obviously, there's a biological reality that Abraham begot Isaac and Sarah, obviously. But what does this mean that these are the children of Isaac and then it says Isaac is the child of Isaac? That means that on a very deep level, Isaac gave birth to himself. But it's deeper than that because he didn't just, it doesn't just say these are the offspring of Isaac, Isaac, and that's the end of the verse. It says these are the offspring of Isaac, Abraham, begot Isaac. So he didn't just give birth to himself. He gave birth to the child that Abraham wanted to have as a child. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Now, Abraham is arguably the greatest person who ever lived. So who do you think Abraham wanted to have as a child? And Isaac became through his own efforts, that child that Abraham envisioned having. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And the example, if you want a visual to try to wrap your mind around that more concretely, the visual that that I'd like to suggest is going to Ikea. You know, you go to Ikea and it's this massive, massive store, showroom after showroom after showroom, And yet, when you leave at the checkout counter, they give you a thin cardboard box, which weighs, by the way, a million pounds, right? And anything can be in that box. A bookcase, a sofa, a bed set. (laughs) Anything can be inside that box. And so, we, you and me, all of us, when we're born, are IKEA boxes. (laughs) That's That's what we are. And we're given a set of instructions, and then we have to put ourselves together over the course of our lifetime. That's what it is. And I can tell you something. You know, I bought a bookcase from Ikea one time, and it was really simple. It was like a a rectangle, right? Long on this side, long on this side, short on the bottom, short on the top a few shelves, came with these instructions. I was like, I think I can do this without the instructions. (laughs) True story, I assembled it, and within minutes, it imploded onto itself with such force that it literally snapped the shelves in half. And I thought, you know, I'm a a little too smart for the instructions. This I have. And I thought to myself, like, the instructions are like the Torah. You know what I mean? Like, we'll get 
a certain amount of life right without looking at the Torah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get the structure up. But if you want it to last and remain and be eternal, you got to be looking at those instructions because they're not intuitive necessarily. There's a lot of commandments that are not intuitive. You need to actually see them. It won't occur to you just out of the blue. So now let's look at Yitzchak as that Ikea box. Okay, so Yitzchak made himself into the son of Avraham, the son that Avraham wanted to have. Now let me throw in one more Ikea detail. After most people assemble one of these Ikea things, they look over to the side and they see there's a whole handful of screws. <laughs> and they wonder, where are those screws supposed to go? Why do I have these extra pieces that are not part of the thing that I built? So what was the holy genius, if you will, of Yitzchak's self-construction is that when he was done, there were no pieces left over. He took the fullness of himself and he became that full realized vision. So, so that's our question for ourselves. As we're going through life, putting ourselves together, what screws are left over right now? <laughs> what are the things that we know ideally we would like to have in our life that aren't there? And how can we get those things into our life? How can we incorporate those things into our life to be the fullest version of ourselves? Right? To be the person that your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and all the tzaddikim and God himself envisioned you to be. Okay. Now I want to take it one step further. And now we're going to wrap everything up and go back to the wells and soulmates. One of the most amazing things that Yitzchak did was he dug all of these wells. Now remember, what did we say? Water equals life. And Torah equals water. And what Yitzchak did was, Abraham was incredibly, you know, Abraham was really famous in the day. I don't know if everybody knows that. Kings consulted with him. Also, Avraham had his, excuse me, Avraham had his own currency. A lot of people don't know that. And it was the most trusted currency in the entire world. Not only that, but Rabbi Moshe Shapira Shalom explains what the image on it was and what it meant. It was a picture of Avraham and Sarah as a young couple on one side, and on the other side as an old couple. But what Rabbi Shapiro offers is an amazing explanation and narrative. He says, do you know what side one was? The two of them as an old couple. And then as they went through life, it was the two of them as a young couple because they were able to renew their lives as they got older and actually become younger as they got older. I mean, as you see, they have this child late in life, which is amazing. So, so Avraham, as, as an aspect of just his success in life, he was digging all these wells and getting water all over the place. He had like a lot of wells. Like that's beyond gold, you know? That's life. The Plish team opposed Avraham and they filled up these wells during his lifetime. What did Yitzchak do? Now remember, now remember, we're dealing now with a lot of overlapping imagery right now. We're dealing with the idea of water as life, water as Torah, and water where you meet your soulmate. Yitzchak went, he redug the wells of his father which means he made them new, he made them his, but he gave them the same name as his father gave them. Do you see what that is? He made the Torah his own, but he also made it in the name of his father. He took the Torah of his father and he made it his own by doing it through his own path. 
and his own uniqueness. And I want to say, based on that, Avraham encountered, rather, Yitzchak encountered his soulmate, which was himself, which was the Torah itself, which was the Torah that's inside him and the Torah that was from his father. In other words, when we dwell and dig in the Torah, in our own lives, in our own, in our own studies, we are encountering and connecting with the deepest part of ourselves, our own soulmate, if you will. And we're also contextualizing our lives, not just in the present tense, but in the ongoing stream of all the generations. Because if you really want to realize you, it's not just about being the best you. It's about being the best you as also a neshama that's part of this great stream called the Jewish people. Because you're part of this stream also. Like if you think of a drop of water from the ocean and you just kind of take it out of the ocean, well, if you kind of just look at it as a drop of water, you're kind of not really fully appreciating what that drop of water is because that drop of water comes from an ocean. That's part of the identity of that drop of water. So to realize our souls most fully, we have to get out the uniqueness that's inside each of us individually, which is different from everybody else. We each have our own way. But also to realize that within the context of this incredible body of light called the Jewish people. And when we do that, as they say, we're cooking with gas. <laughs> what follows now are some questions and answers. Okay, so, so a very important thing, and this is, this, I'm going to tell you a, a little thing which has been a very big thing in my life, which is that when I... Let's say I throw a Kleenex into the waste paper basket and I miss and it hits the floor. I pick it up right away. And if I walk in the house and I see a piece of paper on the floor and my brother-in-law like sprained his back following this advice, so he's kind of mad at me for this, but anyway, that aside, if I see a piece of paper on the floor, I pick it up right away and I throw it out. When I brush my teeth in the morning and the toothpaste is all over the sink, I clean the sink right away. This has had such a powerful effect on my life. So you weren't doing that before? I was not doing that before. Like I'd walk by a piece of paper on the floor and I'd go, I should pick that up and I'd walk past it. This changed my life. Let me tell you why. Because it sent a message to me that I can accomplish things immediately, that I can experience success right away, and that I'm capable of affecting change in a real way. Immediately. Immediately. And so what that did was it gave me strength because it's just, I've been a terrible procrastinator my entire life. That, that's not true. I've been a great procrastinator my entire <laughs> life. That's the problem, right? And, and what it's done is it's given me the ability, I'm not saying every time, if I have to make a phone call or write an email, I have found that I've been successful in writing the email or make the phone call substantially faster or right away when formerly I wouldn't be able to do it at all. There's a certain muscle that gets exercised when I do something even though it's really small and seemingly insignificant. When I do it right away, that exercises this do it right away muscle and that it's spilled over in other more meaningful places in my life. And that is absolutely one of the target bullseye areas of getting the mind and the heart together. In other words, it's not just a halakhic thing, like, oh, this is the right Torah thing to do, I'm supposed to be doing this right now, I'm not doing it. It's, it's, I'm talking about life right now. And it's a, it, the point I was trying to make was a much larger point and so I'm really glad you're bringing this up because that is, there's so many ways and so many times during the day where we separate our mind and our hearts. I'll do it later. I won't do it. When we do that, the heart and the mind just move another inch apart, right? And so it's a real blessing. And I'm telling you, I've seen blessing in my life from doing it. So 
Yeah. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>